Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I, I know what I'm talking about. I, I gotta let them know. Time for me to let them know. Time for me to let them know about my podcast. Time for me to let them know about what's going down. Time for me to explain myself. Time for me to let them know what Wendell's World Sports is all about. Check it out, y'all. Good morning, good afternoon, bonjour, bonsoir, que pasa, shalom, wassalam alaikum, namaste, konnichiwa. I would like to introduce myself. My name is Wendell Wallace, the star producer, director of the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can ever listen to. Wendell's World in Sports talks about what is going on in the everyday of sports from every angle, position, perception, point of view, and insight. What is going on in the NBA? What is happening in the NFL? The news and issues of college football and basketball. Sometimes might mention the sport of baseball, the sweet science, the brutal sport of boxing, and of course, my Georgetown Hoyas. 40 plus years of unhibited devotion, the absolute loves of my life, till death do I part with them from national conference and conference tournament championships through season of 6 and 25 and national embarrassment, despair, and irrelevancy. I will always be down with my Hoyas. So when it comes to my podcast, sports podcast listeners, sports fans in general, you will bow down. You will pay homage in the words of the tribal chief when it comes to my podcast, Acknowledge Me. Wendell's World and Sports. Download, subscribe, follow, rate, review, like, and most importantly, enjoy any way, anyhow, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Roin, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Today, I am doing a simulcast. This is going to be published on Wednesday, both on my YouTube episode and also on my audio page. Anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcast, iHeart, iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, this podcast, this episode is going to be the same, both on the audio platform and also on the video platforms. Had the opportunity, some nonsense, some bullshit that happened in my life over the past week I had to take care of. Now that's been taken care of. So I didn't have the opportunity. Normally on Sunday, I do my audio episode and put it up on a Monday morning. But I didn't have the opportunity to do that because I was dealing with some nonsense. Then on Monday, I was watching the Monday night game between Kansas City and Las Vegas and was going to decide to do the audio on the Monday night game, and I did. The, the show was awesome. The episode was awesome. An hour and 40 minutes of just golden, just fantastic, just in, in, in entertaining sports talk. And then I went to go ahead and publish it, and there was nothing that was recorded. So I did the whole doggone thing, and nothing was recorded. So after cursing and shouting and screaming and throwing things and hitting things and acting like a, a juvenile or a five-year-old, I looked at the time, and I said, it's 11 o'clock. I ain't doing this again. So... Here we are on a Tuesday, and I said to myself, because I publish my 
YouTube episode on Wednesdays and record them on Tuesdays, I'll just go ahead and take care of both the situations, the audio and the video. So if you're going to be listening to this episode anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcast, iHeart, iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, and if you're liking what you're listening to, could you do me a favor, please? Just go ahead and uh, download, subscribe, rate, and review. Most importantly, as always, enjoy the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can listen to. Would very much appreciate it. And if you are watching me do my thing in terms of speaking about what's happening in the world of sports and you're enjoying what you're listening to and mainly speaking to the ladies between the ages of 42 and 49, being single, if you're liking what you see, yeah, go ahead and uh, subscribe to my uh, YouTube channel, like, comment, do all those great things, and I would very much appreciate it. Okay, let's go ahead and get into it. I want to begin the uh, podcast today by starting off by speaking about the uh, Monday night game between Kansas City and Las Vegas. I know everybody's speaking about the roughing the penalty um, call that was made against uh, Kansas City late in the second quarter. I'm going to get into that a little bit a little bit later on. I'm going to marinate that with uh, my thoughts and opinions about the horrible call also that was made in terms of the roughing the passer call that was made in the Tampa Bay Atlanta game. So I want to uh, infuse those two instances in speaking about that at one time. So I'm not going to get into that um, in this segment. I will be getting into it in the second segment. What I want to speak about Concerning, concerning what happened in the Monday night game and also some of the highlights that happened in week five of the NFL and now going back to the Raiders and the uh, Kansas City team is the two decisions that were made by the head coaches of the Raiders and the Kansas City football team. Josh McDaniels, head coach for the Las Vegas Raiders, and Andy Reid, the head coach for the Kansas City football team with the score after Kansas City scored. They were ahead by one, 24-23. They scored a touchdown to make it 30-23. The common knowledge in my thoughts and my opinion was you just go for it or in terms of you just go kick the extra point and you're ahead by eight and you're going to need Oakland or, excuse me, Las Vegas at the time to get the ball, go down, not only score a touchdown, but also then have to convert the two-point conversion just to tie the game. But Andy Reid didn't go for the extra point. He instead went for the two-point conversion. So instead of it being 31-23, the failed two-point conversion only made the score 30-23 to with about four and a half minutes left to go in the fourth quarter, which gave the Raiders plenty of time to go ahead and to uh, score. And my thoughts were to tie up the game with the uh, extra point. And after a long pass to uh, Devontae Adams from David Carr with under four minutes to go, the Raiders tied up the game. I was under the assumption that they were just going to go ahead and uh, kick the uh, extra point. We have been so programmed. If you've been watching football for a, a, a large amount of time, for even a, a small amount of time, that the common sense would tell you that in a situation like this, that you go ahead and you kick the extra point and you tie up the score and we see what happens. Instead... Josh McDaniels, on the road, decided that he was going to go for the two-point play, even though there would have been plenty of time for Kansas City, even if the conversion was made, there was still plenty of time for Kansas City to work their way methodically down the field and either get a touchdown or kick a field goal to win the football game. 
even though there probably would have been left a little bit of time for Las Vegas to try to do some things, it was still a situation where, okay, yeah, McDaniels is going for the two-point conversion. I, I, I guess my only question would be, why would you be doing that? Because even if you do tie up the score, or even if you do convert the, the two-point conversion and it makes it a one-point lead for you guys, you're still turning the ball back over to Patrick Mahomes with the opportunity for him to go down and kick a field goal, score a touchdown, and win the game. Which then you could say, well, if that's the case, what's the difference between us leading by one and us being tied if that's going to be your thought process? If, if, if Patrick Mahomes is going to take the ball, go down and score anyway, what difference does it make if we're ahead by one or it's a tie game? We're still going to lose by either three, two, seven, or six. Okay, I get it. I would have understood a little bit better if McDaniels would have gone for the two-point conversion with maybe under 30 seconds, under 15 seconds or something like that to not have to have Oakland, or excuse me, talk on, second time I did that, to have Los Angeles. That's the first time I've said that. Man, how many times am I going to go to the San Diego Raiders when they were in the AFL next? My bad. The Las Vegas Raiders. I live out here in Las Vegas, too. That's what makes it even more embarrassing. The Las Vegas Raiders. Go ahead for the uh, two-point conversion. At the time that they did, it was just kind of baffling to me. Now, situation was they they didn't make it, and they still had an opportunity to win the game because the defense held. And then for some reason on fourth down to one, um, the miscommunication or the mishap in the, uh, with the right receiving core caused a uh, bad throw and allowed Kansas City to win the football game. But it was just, it was just interesting to me. And we see the progression. And we see the avenue, and we see the way that the game of football has been played. And now, not only are we speaking about analytics, now we have something called super analytics. In terms of now, you're speaking about going for fourth down more often. You're going. You're speaking about going for the two-point conversion more often, and all these things. We've seen analytics steep into each of the sporting leagues here in this country. We, we've seen what analytics have done for for years. Sometimes, uh, almost almost a decade plus. In Major League Baseball, we, we've seen what has happened with analytics and how it's changed the NBA, making it a three-point shooting and really minimizing the importance of the traditional old-school back-to-the-basket type of game. How many times have we heard this discussion about, oh, man, what, 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 would, the, uh, what would have been the impact of someone like a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or a Will Chamberlain or a Bob Lanier or an August Gilmore or a Shaquille O'Neal if they were playing in the NBA today because those guys weren't going to be going out shooting three-pointers. Those guys weren't going to be going out guarding pick-and-rolls 25 feet away from the basket and switching on players. How effective would the old-school center have been in today's game compared to when they were playing in their era of basketball, the Akeem Olajuwon, the Moses Malones, the Patrick Ewings, the David Robinsons? What, what, would have, what changes would they have made? What Less lesson or greater impact would they have made? How, how would the game have changed? And it's that same way answering, asking those questions when it concerns the NFL. You know, that, that, that running back that was so treasured back when football was in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and even in the 90s. When you had great running backs like LaDamian Tomlinson and going all the way back to Jim Brown and Paul Horning and Jim Taylor and Leroy Kelly and O.J. Simpson and Eric Dickerson and Marcus Allen. And, you know, with some of those names that I just mentioned were the were the a prelude to what we see today where a 
running back can not also can not only run the ball, but they can also catch the ball. The Roger Craigs and, and, and those type of players. And we're thinking to ourselves, you know, back in the day, 30, 40 years ago, depending upon what generation that you're in, man, I grew up with the importance of having a running back, even more than having a quarterback in some instances. And now we see how the way football is played in 2022, 2023, and beyond 2021, before in 2020. Man, how has the game has changed? Sometimes we like it, sometimes we don't. I tell you what. The way the game has changed, we're speaking about a fan base or we're speaking about a football fan who might not be betting every week, who might not be having parlays, who might not be in this fantasy football, who might not even have a, a team of their desire of their favorite team. You know, they're not, they're not loyal. They didn't grow up with a fan base like the Chicago Bears or the Pittsburgh Steelers or the Green Bay Packers or my Washington, then Redskins, then football team, and now Commanders. You know, as far as an entertainment value, if you don't have a dog in the hunt, if you don't have a guy in the fight, if you're just watching it purely based on entertainment value with no big deal or with no concern about a team that's going to be winning, don't you think the game is a lot more exciting now with the super analytics where you have coaches now? taking more educated guesses or educated risks in terms of going for it on fourth down and going for two-point conversions and, and playing that type of game. Isn't the game more exciting? Isn't the game more fun? Isn't the game more interesting? And, and I, <clears throat> I think just from a purely <clears throat> getting away from X's and O's, and look, we, we can sit here and Monday morning quarterback, or in this case, Tuesday morning quarterback, the play call that was made by Josh McDaniels, and even Andy Reid to death. But, you know, the one thing that we have to keep reminding ourselves when we sit there and we start calling Josh McDaniels, Josh McDaniels stupid, and he doesn't know what he's doing, and he can't coach, and he needs to be fired, and we're criticizing these guys, and same with Andy Reid, or for any of these guys, Brandon Staley, the head coach of the Los Angeles Chargers. You know, one thing that we have to understand, that we are in no way anywhere close to being uh, knowledgeable or being able to handle the job that they do. So when we sit back and on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Friday morning, whenever the games are played in that morning, we're second-guessing and we're talking about this guy should have done this and done it and instead of doing that. Based on the result that we already know, we're making ourselves look rather foolish. We're making ourselves look rather stupid. We're making ourselves look kind of silly. When we sit there, we make this, Josh McDaniels terrible. Josh McDaniels can't coach. Josh McDaniels is a bum. Did you see that decision that he had on Monday night to go for it on fourth down? I can't believe it. He was, you know, he should have kicked the field goal or he should have kicked the extra point. And that way, those guys would have, we, we always take the best case scenario in these situations. If he would have done this, then without question, this would have happened in terms of if the, if the Raiders would have just kicked the extra point, then hell, they would have won in overtime or they would have won in regulation. Really? How do we know that? How do you know that? John Harbaugh, what was he doing a couple of weeks ago in the game against Buffalo? How could he not kick the field goal and take the lead at 23-20? How could he go for it on fourth down? That's ridiculous. That's idiotic. That's stupid. Yeah, we're criticizing him right now. Do you think John Harbaugh, if he knew what the results would have been, would have gone for it on fourth down? Of course not. But he's making these in the moment of the battle. We're not. We're reacting to what happens, whether it's a failed play or a successful play. We don't know more about football than John Harbaugh. We don't know more fo about football than Andy Reid. We don't know more about NFL football than Josh McDaniel. 
So my only beef, my only complaint, my only comment concerning all this is that the only thing that I would ask for in situations like this, McDaniels going for it at that, 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 that time and space during the game, hey, man, just be consistent in what you believe, what your philosophy is, and what you're going to do. We can sit there and we can yell and we can scream and we can scratch our head and we can get furious over some of the fourth down um, decisions that the uh, Los Angeles Chargers head coach Brandon Staley makes. But if his team is on the same page in terms of this is what our coach does in these situations, so we know in these situations like against Cleveland, we, we know that he's putting the onus on us to either succeed or fail with the play call that's going to be coming in for us to execute, it gives us some some, some sense of um, it gives us some sense of, of ownership into what we do, because if we execute the play, if we make the correct read, if we make the right blocks, if we execute the play, then we should be okay. And then all of the second guessing and all of this, he's an idiot and he doesn't know what he's doing and he's crazy and all this kind of stuff. That would be mute. And we go ahead and we do what we're supposed to do. So that's one of the reasons why, as far as what I'm concerned, in terms of any of these, any of these decisions, from the outside looking in, from the ignorant um, uh, knowledge that I have of coaching a professional football team, yeah, I can kind of sit there and scratch my head and say, Andy Reid's going for it when you can kick a field goal and be ahead by eight points. But I don't know. I don't know what the game conditions are. I don't know what my defense is all about. I don't know the rhythm of the game because I'm not there calling plays. I don't know any of these things. I don't know what's happening with my quarterback. I don't know what's happening with my offensive line. I don't know what's happening with my secondary. In terms of, you know, being right there and being able to taste it, being able to smell it, being able to feel it, Andy Reid has all of those components at his, at his uh, beck and call to use during that time. I'm sitting back on a sofa, eating some chips, drinking some soda. That's the reason my, my fat ass is as fat as it is. I'm up there just watching it from 2,500 miles away. I don't know. So, again, this I, I don't – we always like to say that's the reason why the Raiders lost the game. No, it didn't. The, the, the fact that Josh Jacobs – and now I'm not, not speaking about Jinger Humble Smith fell down before he got to the end zone. That's not the reason why the Raiders lost. They played a small role, a little bit of a role, but the Raiders had great opportunities to win that football game, and they didn't get it done. The Arizona Cardinals on Sunday had great opportunities to win that game before Amendola missed that 43-year-old 43 uh, field goal. He didn't get it done. So to always pinpoint... One play to say, oh, that's the reason why we lost the game. Bingo. No. No. It might have prevented them from having a better opportunity. But to lose? To put the blame on that? No. No. Not happening. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host. Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what's happening, speaking about what's going on, speaking about week five of the NFL starting from the last game of the week, the Monday night game between Kansas City and Las Vegas and working ourselves, working ourselves back to the weekend with a burning love inside. Spinners, look it up, y'all. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Patrick Mahomes doing Patrick Mahomes type thing. The Raiders one and four. You know, it's interesting because we hear all this, you know, when you're one and four, the chances of you making the playoffs are blah, 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 blah. And the Raiders, Bill Parcells, you are what your record is, right? 
But man, you take a look at some of the other teams that are one in four. And I, and I don't know, you don't get orange slices, you don't get a trophy, you don't get a bonus, you don't get a raise, you don't get a ring for having this moniker, especially this early in the season. But uh, the Raiders are probably the best one in four team in the league. They're a lot better than teams that are two and three right now. What does that mean for the Raiders moving forward that they go into the bye? It means that, you know what? There's something for Josh McDaniels to work on. And with the softer uh, spot of their schedule coming up, it's a situation where they can kind of take a look at this glass half full and move forward and get themselves moving again. Because except for Kansas City and the AFC West, the Chargers aren't distancing themselves from anybody in that division. The Broncos are just teetering and tottering and struggling. And if you take a look at some of the other teams in the AFC, who's the best team in the AFC North? When you take a look at the Steelers, the way that they have floundered, the way that they're fumbling, the way that they're stumbling, the way that they're bumbling, the way that they're disappointing. You take a look at the Steelers. You take a look at the Bengals, who still can't protect Joe Burrow with any type of consistency, and the offensive line has been uh, inept and inconsistent. You take a look at the Baltimore Ravens, and you've seen the offensive futility that they've had for long stretches of time and not being able to close out games. You, you, You take a look at those situations. You take a look at what's happening in the AFC South. Well, there's, there's no one there. Indianapolis has underperformed. Jacksonville is going back to being Jacksonville. Houston has always been Houston. And Tennessee doesn't look like world beaters. You take a look at the AFC East. Yeah, the New York Jets, surprising. But do you really trust that team for the long haul? You take a look at New England. Yeah, they got Bill Belichick. But do you really trust this kid Zappy to continue, um, you know, New England being successful like they were against the uh, Detroit Lions. You, you take a look at those squads. You take a look at the injuries and you take a look at the turmoil with the uh, Miami Dolphins. I mean, you, you take a look at all that. Josh McDaniels can point to all that and say, name me a team maybe outside of Kansas City that we should fear, except for the Buffalo Bills. Buffalo and Kansas City. Other than those two squads, name me a team that we should fear. Maybe n- Name me a team that... Uh, in our hearts and in this locker room that we should not have a great opportunity to play and beat. So despite the fact that the Raiders are struggling right now with that record, I don't think all should be lost in terms of the Raiders having the ability, especially when you're speaking about a 17-game schedule, to turn that that, that turn the uh, turn the team around. Josh Jacobs had his best game as a running back, the offensive line, while inconsistent with um, holding penalties and other, other penalties did a good enough job. They were ahead 17 nothing at Arrowhead. The defense still can't cover anybody in the secondary, but uh, you know Max Crosby had an impactful game. There, there's still some things there in terms of the uh, Raiders, their schedule, and the team itself and the talent itself as Devontae Adams and David Carr continues to uh, work chemistry and, and get a better feeling for each other, even though they work out on, on a consistent basis during the offseason, even when Devontae was playing for the, the Green Bay Packers, once the Raiders get some of their um, skilled players back from injury, wouldn't count out the Raiders in terms of making a move. Again, especially when you check their division and you see what's happening in Los Angeles with the Chargers and you see what's happening in Denver with the Broncos. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you can be with us. Okay, let's go ahead and take a look at some interesting storylines coming from week five of the NFL. You know it's only been two years, right? Two to three years? Somewhere around there, three years, right? The NFC East 
has gone from being the NFC least to the NFC beast. This is the best division in football, y'all. I'm not lying, and I wouldn't lie to you. The Philadelphia Eagles, the only undefeated team left in the league with a 5-0 record, they beat Arizona. It was ugly. It was tough. It wasn't perfect, but they won. They won on the road 2017. Eagles, at one point of the game, were playing without three other starters on the offensive line. They were fortunate, not lucky, not lucky, not lucky, fortunate to get the victory against the um, Cardinals. Yeah, you can sit there if you're a glass, glass half-empty guy, if you're trying to make the argument, if you're trying to make the case, if you're trying to make the point that the Eagles are the end-all, the be-all in terms of their record so far and where their power ranking should be. You could take a look and say, well, wait a minute, man. You're up here talking about the Eagles, the Eagles, the Eagles this and the Eagles that. The Eagles are 5-0. and The Eagles' best record in the NFL. The Eagles are number one team in the NFL and this, that, and the other. Hey, man, let me tell you something. They were a mental error by Arizona quarterback Kyler Murray away from possibly, probably losing this game. If you remember late in the game, Murray sliding short of a first down. Then on second down, that was on second down, did that quarterback draw. Then on third down, spiking the ball to bring up fourth down with 22 seconds left. And then kicker Matt Amendola missing a 43-yarder. And if you remember, as the uh, as I was watching on Red Zone and watching the uh, telecast, as they were showing the pregame kick from Amendola on his field goals over 40 yards. And then pregame, they were going wide right, wide right, wide right. And what happened in the game with 22 seconds left, the 43-year-old, 43-yard uh, field goal attempt, wide right. Jalen Hurts had 300 yards total, two rushing touchdowns. Led the team with 61 yards, rushing on 15 carries. Balanced offense again, which had to be an advantage, which had to be um, a, a, a positive sign for the Eagles when you're speaking about them throwing the ball 36 times, rushing the ball 33 times for 140 yards. Again, yeah, man, you can sit here and nitpick. Yeah, you can sit here and say, damn, so for the second week of the second week in a row, the Philadelphia Eagles just did barely enough to be the team that they should have beaten handily, right? The haters are going to say that. Second game, how, how could you call Philadelphia elite? How could you put Philadelphia in the same category as the Buffalo Bills or the Kansas City football team when they're struggling, not for one week, but for two, against a team like the Jacksonville Jaguars or a team like the Arizona Cardinals? Who have they beaten, Wendell? What are we talking about here? What, they, they, they squeak by three points beating a lousy, defensive, uh, weakened Detroit Lions team, 38-35. Oh, wow, they scored 38 points. Hey, man, they just finished giving up 41 points to Geno Smith a couple of weeks ago in the Seattle Seahawks. So don't sit there and try to tell me that uh, all of a sudden Philadelphia is the new version of the greatest show on turf because of what they did on offense against the Detroit Lions. Detroit's been letting many teams in terms of Oprah, and you have a touchdown, and you have a touchdown, and you have a touchdown when they play these other teams. Okay, they had a pretty good game, probably their best game of the season against Philadelphia against um, Minnesota on Monday Night Football. They had a really good second quarter, a dominating second quarter against my Washington Commanders, where they scored all of their points. And then the last two games against um, Jacksonville and Arizona. That don't prove to me nothing. That's what the haters are going to say. That's what the glass-half-empty guys are going to say. Now, fans of the Eagles, those who believe in the Eagles, are going to sit there and say, let me tell you something, man. Name me a squad. Maybe with the exception of the 2007 
New England Patriots. Name me a squad in NFL history or over the past 10, 15 years where every game they had was a masterpiece, where every game they had was an A-plus performance, where every game they had was flawless. Name me, name me, a, name me a team that won the Super Bowl. You know what good teams do, Wendell? When they're having a game where it's ugly, where it's sloppy, where it's not perfect, where it's not pretty, you know what they do? They win. That's what good, team, good teams do. They win. You know what bad teams do? When they play sloppy and they play ugly and they play fugly and they play down to the competition in which they should win, you know what bad teams do? They lose. You know what average teams do most of the time when that happens? They lose. So, yeah. Did, he, did Philadelphia look like uh, the 2007 New England Patriots against my then Washington Redskins? Or did the, the, um, did the Philadelphia Eagles in the last two weeks remind anybody of Kansas City when they played Tampa Bay this season? Or remind anybody when they played, uh, when, when Buffalo played Pittsburgh this uh, past Sunday? No. But who cares? They won. And this isn't college football where you can be penalized or you can be dropped by a bad performance. Winning is winning. So you either win or you lose. There's no half points. There's no asterisks. So this game coming up against Dallas, it's going to be the game of the year so far this season because it's going to tell us a lot, not only about the Philadelphia Eagles, but also about the Dallas Cowboys. And look, man, this is only going to be week, week six. You're going to be talking about game of the year. I mean, Negro, we've got about, what, uh, after this game, we've got what, about 11 more games to go. And you're already speaking about game of the year and all this kind of nonsense. I'm only talking about as of right now, man. As of right now, because as the season goes on, now we start getting into, okay, let's kind of start uh, building a case. Let's kind of start defining what these teams are. We can't do it after four weeks. We can't do it after six weeks. We probably even shouldn't do it after eight weeks. But this is going to be a good point to say, okay, a little bit more evidence so I can start putting together my final analysis on what the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles are this season based on how they played week six against each other. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking about, as I mentioned before, the greatness of the NFC East turning into a beast. Best defense in the NFL right now, the Dallas Cowboys. What do you think? They sure are playing like it, right? In the beginning of the season, I thought it was going to be the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. After week one, everybody was speaking about the um, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. There's been some other defenses. The San Francisco 49ers put on a brilliant performance on uh, Monday night a couple of weeks ago against the Los Angeles Rams. So there's been other contenders for the crown so far this season of best defense in the NFL. But man, someone out there, man, let me ask you a question, man. Throw me this argument out there. What defense has been better than the Dallas Cowboys? Name me a team. They've won four games in a row primarily because of that defense. Dominant again against the uh, defending champion Los Angeles Rams where they won 22-10. Physically overwhelmed the Rams in a game that wasn't even as close as the score indicated. Not one, if you were watching that game, if you were watching that game not as a biased spectator, you never really thought that the Rams were going to get back into that game, did you? The way that Matthew Stafford was being pounded, the way that Matthew Stafford was being um, physically dominated, not just 
Matthew Stafford, but the offense for the Rams. You, you, you never got the feeling that they were going to be able to put together or be consistent enough for one drive to get themselves back into the game, not just one time, but two times after they fell and needed two scores to uh, get themselves back into the game or lead in that game. Dallas did nothing. The Cowboys did absolutely nothing on offense. And it was still more than enough for them to win easily. Cooper rushed through the ball only 16 times for 102 yards. 10 out of 16 for 102 yards. The offense had only 10 first down for the Cowboys. 239 total yards. And they won easily. Because of that defense. Who else in the league right now? When I speak about, when I throw out the argument that the Dallas Cowboys, and hey man, me, me being a Washington Commander fan, I take no pleasure in talking about this. But I mean, let's, let's be real. Let's keep it 100. When we speak about the Dallas Cowboys defense, man, and their responsibility for the team winning, the responsibility that they have, the impact that they have to have for the team to have success, the other defenses that we talk about, that could be considered one of the best defenses in the league. They don't have the responsibilities right now that the Dallas Cowboys defense has in terms of what they need to do to have the team be successful. The Philadelphia Eagles don't have that responsibility. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers don't have that responsibility. The New York Giants don't have that responsibility. The San Francisco 49ers don't have that responsibility. It's the Cowboys. And based mainly on that defense, the Cowboys are now four and one in climbing in terms of team that could be competing to win championships, both conference and Super Bowl championships. This season, Dallas on defense has average has allowed only 14 and a half points per, per game. This is the first time the Cowboys have held each of their first five opponents under 20 points since 1972. What in the name of Bob Lilly is going on here? They also have 20 sacks, the fourth most by any team through five games since the 1970 merger. And against the Rams, as I mentioned before, how many times were they beating up on poor Matthew Stafford? They sacked him five times, pressured him 20 times. So this is a defense where, hey, man, you know, is it good enough to win the Super Bowl? And the question we get every single week now, when we think about that, when we speak about the Cowboys, after we start, after after the glowing uh, uh, platitudes that we give to Micah Parsons and defensive coordinator Dan Quinn and Demarcus Lawrence and such. We always go back to the offense and say, "All right, when are we going to get our Dak back? Is Dak Prescott starting quarterback for the Cowboys? Forty, Mister Forty Million Dollar Man, is he healthy enough to play, or should he play next week against the week before it with the Los Angeles Rams?" which is considered a playoff team, even though with the lack of talent that they have on that squad, especially when you're speaking about the skill positions, I don't know how strong that argument can be considering when you're speaking about the Rams. But, you know, before going into this quote-unquote big game against the Rams, are we going to rush uh, Prescott back? And now when we're speaking about a legit squad in terms of uh, them being for real early in the season, the Philadelphia Eagles is Prescott going to be ready to play. What would be your definition? Let me hear your definition in terms of healthy enough to entertain that discussion. Because people's definition of being healthy enough sometimes is way over here, way over there. We need a consensual agreement. We need an essential, we need a a, a one type of definition of healthy enough. Because Jerry Jones said the other day that there has been no setbacks in Prescott's rehab, but 
The projected four to six weeks after the quarterback underwent injury the day after suffering the injury in the, in the season opener is still not there yet for him to come back and play at the level that he would want to play with. Now, NFL Network insiders Tom Pelissero and Ian Rappaport cited sources saying that Prescott was still regaining grip strength and would need to make significant strides to be ready by the um, Week 6 showdown with the Philadelphia Eagles. But then again, what are we speaking about here? Why are we rushing Prescott back? Again, the NFL season, despite it being only 17 games, man, it's still a marathon and not a sprint when you speak about the physicality of the sports, the violence of the sport itself. Why are we rushing Dak Prescott back in a week six showdown when there's still 11 more weeks left to go or 10 more weeks left to go for the Cowboys after that game? Why are we rushing him back? What's what's the rush? Do you want to have Prescott at 55, 60% for a week six showdown that might hamper the Cowboys and Prescott moving forward through seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, week 11 and 12? Or would you rather have win or lose when we're speaking about, again, a game six of a season that's 17 games, are we going to be thoughtful enough? Are we going to be intelligent enough? Are we going to be long-term thinking enough to say, look, man, we don't need Dak Prescott to be 60% against the Philadelphia Eagles. But we do need him to be 85 90% week 14 when we're starting to make that push, when we're starting to make that run toward winning ourselves a championship. Sit Dak Prescott out, man, and let the defense do what they're doing to continue to uh, be dominant. And and let's see now, in terms of uh, what they're going to do, the defense against an offense in Philadelphia, the emergence of uh, Jalen Hurts, the Philadelphia Eagles quarterback. Let's see how this plays out on on Sunday. The the stars of each team, the defense on Dallas going against that offense and that quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Hello, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, Speaking about what's happening, speaking about what's going on, speaking about the NFC East, the best division in football, spoke about the Philadelphia Eagles 5-0, spoke about the Dallas Cowboys 4-1, the New York Giants. Who would have thought this, right, man? <laughs> it's like, wow. I spoke. I speak about it every year, right? I mean, you've, you've heard me say it before, right? Every year there's a team that we think is going to stink or there's a team that's not going to be any good, and they surprise us. Who would have thought Cincinnati last year, right? Unbelievable, right? Are New York Giants this season Cincinnati Bengals? Early in the season. I get it. I know it's early, but there's going to be some team that's going to emerge, right? There's got to be, right? Doesn't history tell us that? So do you think? Is it the Giants? 4-1 this season, the most surprising team in the in the league, head coach Brian Dayball. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and say it, coach of the year so far. But in this game, and, and I think now it was like the Giants had caught our attention. Why? Because of the game in London this past Sunday, 27-22. Man, all of a sudden now, now it's time for us to maybe take the Giants more seriously. But let me ask you this. Was this the best win for the Giants or the most embarrassing loss for the Packers? What should we take more in terms of eye-opening What should we be discussing more? The fact that the Giants beat the Green Bay Packers or that the Packers lost to the New York Giants? Like, oh my goodness, the the Giants beat the Green Bay Packers because coming into the season, right, we were all thinking that the Green Bay Packers were going to be one of those teams despite the fact that they lost uh, Devontae Adams. The, the, the Packers were supposed to be one of these teams that were supposed to be vying for that playoff, right? 
So, oh my goodness gracious, the, the, the Giants beat a team that many people thought were real contenders for the uh, for the Super Bowl. They beat the two-time MVP. Oh my goodness, the former division champs, all of this stuff. But then we look and we say, well, by the Giants winning this game, is this condemnation on the Green Bay Packers and really a reality check for the Green Bay Packers moving forward that they're not the team that we thought they were going to be? I mean, in, in this game against the Packers, just think about it. Glass half full, glass half empty. For the Giants' point of view, in the game against Green Bay, they were missing their top four receivers. Kadarius Toney, Wendell Robinson, Kenny Galloway, and Sterling Shepard, who's out for the year. Their top receiver was Richie James, who had three touchdowns in three seasons with the Tampa, with the uh, San Francisco 49ers, and some guy named um, David Stills the fifth. Now, if it was David Stills the first, oh my goodness. If it was David Stills the second, understand. If it was David Stills the third or fourth, I can live with that. But David Stills the fifth? Who is this guy? He's David Stills five times over. Saquon Barkley suffered a uh, um, shoulder injury and missed roughly half of the game. The Giants were without two of their top healthy cornerbacks in the Dory Jackson and Fabian Moreau, who both left the game with injuries. At this starting defensive tackle, the best player on the defense and maybe on that team, Leonard Williams. And they trailed the uh, Packers 17-3 in the first half. Green Bay didn't score again. Again. Are we talking glass half full? Or glass half empty concerning this? Where are you going with this? Oh my goodness, man, the Giants had um, all of these obstacles and all of this adversity, and they're the team that they were playing, and they still came back and win. The Giants are for real. The Giants, this, that, and the other. Or, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you going to try to tap? Are you going to try to tell me that the Packers were playing against a team, the quarterback, the Daniel Jones, who's not that good to begin with, uh, history tells us, was injured. Also, he had blood all over his hands. Their best offensive player, Saquon Barkley, was out half the game. They didn't have any of their top four uh, wide receivers. They were missing three of their offensive uh, linemen for mo- uh, portions of the game. We held a seventeen to three lead, and we still couldn't score. We still couldn't win the game. Man, forget all this stuff about hooping and hollering and dancing on the ceiling like uh, Lionel Richie and dancing in the streets like Martha and the Vandellas and doing the funky chicken and the James Brown celebrating the uh, emergence of the New York Giants. Man, what did that say for the Green Bay Packers? What did it say for the Green Bay Packers who couldn't stop anybody on defense when they needed to? What did it say for the Green Bay Packers that Aaron Rodgers didn't throw for over 100 yards in the second half? What did it say for the Green Bay Packers that the way they struggled? In the second half, does it say that, my goodness, the Green Bay Packers are in real trouble? Or again, does the pendulum swing back to the New York Giants, this, that, and the other? Time will tell. Time will tell in these situations. I'm just interested. They got the defense. I love the way Dayball is coaching this team. He, as, a, as a play caller, man, the Giants are doing some really, really interesting and fun stuff on offense. That, that double reverse that allowed the uh, Giants to score their first touchdown. That was funky, man. And I still think that tight end had the option to uh, throw it to uh, Jones or somebody in the end zone. Instead, he's decided to take it himself for the touchdown. The Giants are doing some really, really interesting, great things. They're playing hard. Daniel Jones is playing well. Barkley is playing well. The defense is playing well. How long can they hold it up? I don't know. But, man, so far, so good in terms of what the Giants are doing as a football team. Progressing, 
How are they going to uh, perform? Will all of these injuries catch up to them? I guess the uh, main question mark is, is, of course, going to be Daniel Jones. When we speak about the viability of the New York Giants being true championship contenders, conference championship contenders, division contenders, what is this? What are we? What are we looking for from Daniel Jones? What are we expecting from Daniel Jones? What can we expect f- uh, from Daniel Jones? That's going to be the question moving forward for the New York Giants. I'm pretty much sold on the defense being legit, but on the offensive side of the p- football, if Saquon goes down again, what are we going to do as far as talent at the wide receiver position? And all of that responsibility, you can only scheme and you can only play call so much. It's going to come a time when Daniel Jones is going to have to win some football games because of him. Is that going to be an issue? Is that going to be a problem? Is that going to be something that the New York Giants can count on? We will see on that one. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. I'm not going to even, I'm not going to even mention my commanders. <laughs> no rambling. No me. Mist- Laying on the couch, talking about when I was a young kid, this is what happened, this is how I, how I became a Washington football fan, and this is how I feel now some 40-something years later. Not going to do it. I'm, not gonna, I'm going to spare you. I'm going to save you. Don't, don't turn off the YouTube. Don't turn this off. I'm not talking about my commanders. They're, they're done. They're irrelevant. They stink. Moving on. <laughs> I want to ask you this question here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. Doesn't it look like Tom Brady's having any fun? I, I, I know, I know, I know. How can you have fun when you're 3-2? and two, You're missing a lot of your offensive weapons. Uh, you've been inconsistent on offense. You're not playing up to your standards. And um, there's been some games that have been quite ugly, quite underwhelming. I mean, what, what's Tom Brady supposed to be doing, man? I mean, is he supposed to be doing the James Brown up and down the sidelines you know, while dancing to a little bit of tenderness by Otis Redding? You know, getting down by doing the moonwalk with the Michael Jackson and don't stop till you get enough and, and that type of stuff. I mean, what, what, do you, what do you want, Wendell? What do, you, what do you expect? Tom Brady, one of the most, you know, ultra-competitive guys. Of course he's miserable. Of course he's not feeling it. I mean, you know, what, what's going to be happening? I don't know, man. I mean, all of those things are true, but I've always said this, man. I ain't going to be talking about anybody's personal life unless it um, bleeds into what they're doing on the field. So, you know, when this Tom Brady off-the-field rumors started uh, circulating, I was like, look, man, I'm not going to discuss it. Anything off the field that's none of my business is something that I don't want to know. I don't want to know what's going on in his marriage. I don't want to be – it's none of my business. It's none of my business. Now, what he does on the field, I can talk about, I can discuss, I can give my thoughts and opinions. Anything he does off the off the field, unless he's murdering young boys and burying them in his crawl space, unless he's walking on college campuses in Utah and Seattle and uh, bludgeoning and murdering young college girls. Other than that, I don't want to know what this guy does off the off the field. I don't want to know what any athlete does off the court unless he's doing something good as far as charity work or something like that. But in their personal life, I don't want to know and I don't care. I don't want to know about their marriage. I don't want to know about their kids. I don't care. Unless it's affecting them on the field, on the court, at the stadium, the arena, the ring, octagon, wherever. Then we can go ahead, the race car, whatever. Then we can go ahead and talk about it. Is it now time to talk about it in terms of these reports that are surfacing about an impending divorce and all of these things? It's... How much is that weighing on Tom Brady? It would be inhuman. And look, luckily, I've never been married or have any kids, so I can't kind of give you a 
I can't give you a, um, a blow by blow or what it feels like to be marriage. Maybe, maybe you do in terms of how it affects you in terms of, you know, how you perform at your place of business, at, at your place of employment. But uh, Tom Brady's only human, a flesh and blood one man. And so when you're speaking about what's going on in his personal life, it's got to affect him on the football field, right? And, and when you take a look at the age difference, and I think all of this combined, now we're starting to see like, man, how does a 45-year-old man, I mean, forget all about the physical part, I mean, because he's defying logic in terms of it playing at the level that he's been playing at uh, past 42, 43, 44, now going on to 45. But how, how does a guy who's going through the shit that he's going through, where does he turn to? Like, because, you know, the football team, we're brothers and we've got our backs and they're like family and all this kind of stuff. Can, can Tom Brady really call any of the guys on the team right now, for the most part, brothers? He might be able to call them sons. I mean, there's players on the team right now for Tampa Bay that weren't even born when Tom Brady first came into the league. I mean, how can he, how can he discuss, how can he sit back and, 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 and you know, kind of, you know, air things out with guys who are 15, 20, 22 years younger than he is? I mean, think about it, man. I mean, think about folks my age. Are you going to be up there discussing anything personally with someone who's 25 years younger than you or 20 years younger than you? Can he go to the coaches? Can he go to Byron Leftwich, I think, is probably, I think he's younger than Brady is, even though they're in the same sphere in terms of the generation is concerned. I mean, can he go to Coach Bowles? I mean, where, where can he turn to, to? Where can he go to? And on top of that, again, the, the, the Buccaneers are struggling. Julio Jones had been in and out of the lineup. Mike Evans missed a game because of a suspension. Chris Godwin had missed games because of injury. Ryan Jensen, their center, missing the entire year because of injury. Offensive line has been in flux because of injuries. You know, Leonard Fournette has been consistent from the running back position, but but yet and still the def- the offense has sputtered. Um, you know, I, I I'm wondering because Tom Brady's coming back to play. Coming back to play to win Super Bowls, right? So I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, man, does Tom Brady sit up here and think in a private moment when it's just him? They they say that, you know, Giselle has moved out. So when he's at home by himself without his wife, without his kids, I mean, is there a moment where he just kind of genuflects and says, I should have stayed retired because I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling sad, and this sucks. <laughs> I need my Giselle. The fact that he's he chose football over Giselle, I mean, you find her attractive, good for you. But, you know, you, you chose your family. You, you chose football over your family, and you just assumed that, you know, Giselle and the kids were just going to be, you know, rip-roaring, ready to go with that idea, and now you're finding out that it's not. Did I make the right decision and coming back. And if he is having those thoughts, which I'm quite sure he does from time to time, he's only human. How is that affecting his play on the football field? He, he's still the most important player on that team from an offensive standpoint and, and, and high up in terms of players on that team to, to, to uh, determine the success of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Man, is he... It's just everything about Tom. I mean, I don't know the man personally. 
Never sat down with him, never chatted with him, never hung out with him, never hung out with him and his kids. I don't know the man personally, but from the outside looking in from afar, it just looks like he's not having any fun. It just looks like he's just like, man, you know, it, he looked like Brett Favre at the end of his career. He looks like Tim Duncan at the end of his career. He looks like Johnny Unitas with the San Diego Chargers at the end of his career. It just looks like a guy where it's kind of like, yep, yeah, someone's trying to tell me that, uh, you know, we, we all have the, when do we know when it's time to end? I'll know when I, believe me, before anybody else starts telling me you need to retire, you need to retire, I'll know way before you guys. And I think Tom Brady is coming to the realization that, man, I'm starting to uh, realize that, uh, yeah, it's uh, time for me to go because right now I ain't feeling it. So it, it'll, it'll be interesting moving forward. Interesting week five that uh, was happening, you know, um, Buffalo, what they did to the uh, to the Pittsburgh Steelers, the New York Jets, Robert Sala still taking uh, still taking notes, still taking receipts. Still too early in the season to uh, see what direction the Jets are going to be going in, just like the uh, just like the New York Giants. The AFC West, I think, has been underwhelming when you take a look at some of the prognostications and some of the opinions, especially after the Broncos acquired Russell. Uh, Wilson, there was talk about that, uh, you know, the the team could uh, a team in that division could win 10, 11 games and miss the playoffs because you were speaking about the ascension of Justin Herbert with the Los Angeles Chargers and the acquisition of Khalil Mack. We were speaking about the Denver Broncos getting them um, Russell Wilson. We were speaking about the Las Vegas Raiders acquiring Devontae Adams and Chandler Jones to shore up their defensive uh, line. We were speaking about Kansas City still being Kansas City. And people were speaking about, man, well, the AFC West is going to be the best. You were speaking about the NFC West and what they were putting down that they could also uh, challenge for that moniker. But so far, through six games or through six uh, five weeks of the season, the best division in football, without question, without debate, has been the NFC East. So, so very, very interesting. All right, I'm going to get up and boogie a little bit. When we when we get on back. I'm going to go ahead and start speaking about some NFL news. I'm going to be speaking about what's going to be happening with Matt Rule, what's going to be happening with the Carolina Panthers, and again, discussing the ridiculous, idiotic, nonsensical, roughing the passer uh, calls that were made. And uh, get into that and explain some of the reasons why those uh, calls were made. And we're speaking about changes and NFL rule changes and what we're going to do about all this type of stuff. I'm here to tell you, and I'm going to tell you in the next segment, in terms of uh, modifying what's going on with roughing the penalty, roughing the passer penalty, despite the criticism and despite the uh, two blown calls that have been magnified and showed to the world. Hey, man, as far as messing around with roughing the password penalty and changing it, do not do a thing. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. Let's go ahead and a little try, 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 try love, baby.
Welcome back to Wendell's World in Sports. So doggone glad that you could be with us. Some NFL news and notes. The first NFL coach was fired on Monday. Carolina Panthers fired head coach Matt Rule. After starting the season 1-4, he was fired after the Panthers lost to the San Francisco 49ers 37-15, in which, if you were watching that game and you didn't know where the game was being played, you could have sworn that game was being played in Santa Clara, California, at the home of the San Francisco 49ers, because it did not in any way, shape, or form sound like that game was being played in Carolina at Bank of America Stadium, but yes, it was. So I'm quite sure the owner of the Panthers, David Tepper, was out there listening to the crowd being pro San Francisco and up there speaking about, hey, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not playing the Green Bay Packers. We're not playing the Dallas Cowboys. We're not playing the Pittsburgh Steelers. We're not playing the New York Giants. We're not playing the Chicago Bears who travel well. We're playing the doggone San Francisco 49ers. Man, how many transplants in Charlotte, North Carolina are from San Francisco? Are you kidding me? I lived in the Bay Area for a couple of years. I still get melancholy and ask myself the question, okay, why did I move from San Francisco again? Oh, yeah, that's right. I ran out of the money, even though I enjoyed living in Las Vegas. So why is it that the San Francisco, my, my stadium is being overrun? By fans of the San Francisco 49ers? Nah, man, something had to go. Something had to be done about this. And uh, being the owner of the uh, Carolina Panthers said, Matt Rule, let me see here. You're 1-4, you're 11-27 through three and a half years. Yeah, I know I gave you like a seven-year, $60 million, $62 million contract around January of 2020, but you, I don't know where you're going. You've got to get the hell out of here. So, again, this firing, Rule's firing came less than six months Six full months, in fact, after Tepper said that it would take five, maybe six to rebuild an organization capable of sustaining excellence. But then he also made the statement last season after Carolina acquired, um, after he acquired Cam Newton, part deux, that uh, he expected the team to complete, compete for a playoff position. So it's like... Boy, okay. That's, uh, that's interesting. So as I mentioned before, Rule is still owes somewhere around $40 million because he signed that seven-year, $62 million contract when he uh, came out of uh, Baylor. Steve Wilkes, the defensive game coordinator, past game coordinator, was named the interim head coach. He had previous head coaching experience in the NFL with the Arizona Cardinals in 2018, where he went 3-13, and and Car- and the um, Carol- and the Arizona Cardinals said, get, out, get on out of here. The Panther also, Panthers also fired defensive coordinator Phil Snow, He's going to be replaced by defensive run game coordinator Al Holcomb, who was Wilkes defensive coordinator at Arizona in 2018. So as I mentioned before, man, um, uh, Rule finished with an 11-27 record. Check this out. The Panthers were 1-27. 1-27 when they allowed 17 or more points with Matt Rule as their coach, including 25 losses in a row. And a league that's begging for points and doing everything humanly possible to have offenses put points on the board. One in 27? 25 losses in a row? <laughs> when, when you allow 17 or more points? Good Lord, what kind of offense is this? The Cooper Rush, Dallas Cowboys-led offense? Reason for rule not succeeding? Very simple, man. Terrible on offense. Couldn't win but below average quarterback. Some of it's his fault. Some of it's not his fault. He inherited Cam Newton when he was uh, first the coach. 
He didn't do anything. Then after Newton, he uh, Carolina went ahead and signed Teddy Bridgewater, signed him to a three-year, $63 million deal, found it out that Teddy Bridgewater was nothing more than a very good backup quarterback, not anybody's franchise or starting number one quarterback, as we found that out before he had that devastating injury with the Minnesota Vikings when he was their first-string quarterback and was hoping to be their franchise quarterback. Then, after the Teddy Bridgewater experiment, Carolina traded with the New York Jets for 2018 first-round pick, number three pick in the draft, Sam Darnold out of USC, who had gone 13-25 and 25 with the uh, as a starter with the New York Jets. So that didn't work out, and Darnold underwhelmed and injured his shoulder. So then Carolina brought back Cam Newton, which led to the uh, statement of, that uh, from Tepper talking about, yeah, now I expect to make the, play- make the playoffs. So after Newton finished finished the season losing five games in a row, after that experiment, in July, the Panthers then traded for Baker Mayfield. And this season, Mayfield's been putting up career loads in almost every statistical category for the Panthers. He's 16.5 QBR, the lowest among passers with at least three games in the NFL this season. He's completing about 55% of his passes, which is the league worst, and has committed five turnovers, five turnovers, uh, four interceptions, and one lost fumble. How many times against the 49ers did he have the ball bat down his mechanics are horrible he's just not having a good season so since the start of last season Carolina ranks last in yards per play third down convergence percentage and total QBR the starting quarterbacks who have played for rule completing 62 percent of his passes 34 touchdowns 41 interceptions with a 77 QBR that's not sustainable for a head coach sorry so Matt Rule had to go. Did he lose the locker room? One in four? He had to go. Really didn't matter. Really didn't matter. You know what happens when a team's not performing well. You don't trade the players. You fire the coach. So what's going to be happening next with the Carolina Panthers in terms of <clears throat> how attractive is this job? Speaking about this here on Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast with yours truly, defense can, com- can compete. The offensive line has been good. Christian McCaffrey has been playing very well so far. But they need an upgrade, man, on that wide receiver quarterback position. And if I'm Carolina, if I'm if I'm you, and I'm a Carolina fan, I'm up there every single week screaming at this team through my television at Bank of America, wherever I'm watching Carolina play football. If I got on my Carolina jersey uniform, hopefully you won't have on a uh, hopefully you won't have on a Greg Hardy jersey, please. But if you're anywhere watching Carolina for the rest of the season. You should be shouting, screaming at the television that whoever, lose, 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 because, man, you should be wanting to tank so you can make sure that you can get yourself a, a, a quarterback, along with Washington, along with Houston, along with Seattle, along with Atlanta, along with Detroit. Lose, 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 lose. Yeah, we lost. Woo-hoo. What does that, that make us now? 2-13, yeah, baby. Bryce Young, come on down. Mayfield and Darnold are going to be coming off the books in 2013. So you've got C.J. Stroud. You've got Bryce Young. You've got Will Levis out of Kentucky, which are supposed to be the top-rated quarterbacks at this moment. But who knows, man? By the time the NFL draft rolls around through the combines and through the through the uh, <clears throat> interviews and all this type of stuff, I mean, it could be a situation where Cameron Ward of Washington State could be in a position to where he could be a viable pick. BYU's uh, Jaron Hall could be in that position despite stinking up for the university of miami uh tyler van dyke could be that guy uh P- Penix for washington could be that guy so the basically what you're 
trying to do if you're the Carolina Panthers because if you take a look at their cap space and their future picks, they only have nine picks total from 2023 to 2024. So you have got to make these draft picks count. And you start off by getting yourself a quarterback. Now, I don't know enough about Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, and Will Levis. They each have their... um, They each have their, uh, I wouldn't say red flags, but their concerns. When you speak about the size of Bryce Young and his injury history, when you speak about the system that C.J. Stroud plays in, when you speak about Will Levis playing at Kentucky and other these these other quarterbacks, this is not a situation where their prospects are at the same level as an Andrew Luck or a um, uh, or a uh, Trevor Lawrence or a John Elway or or one of those type of things. So you're not getting yourself from the looks of things as far as prospects are concerned, a generational type quarterback. But man, you can't go on with another retread. You, you can't do it. You have to somehow, someway start your future by getting yourself a quarterback that you can believe in. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So when you're taking a look at the possible coaching candidates for the Panthers, I'm quite sure Tepper is going to go crazy, sell the franchise a soul to get Sean Payton, former coach of the New Orleans Saints, even though I don't I don't know in terms of uh, what New Orleans is going to do in terms of compensation to say, okay, we'll go ahead and give our coach to our team in our division. But when you take a look at other coaching candidates that are available, and you took a you take a look at um, Leslie Frazier, the defensive coordinator for Buffalo, Dan Quinn, the defensive coordinator for the uh, Cowboys, who should be high on everyone's list. He said. Um, Head coaching experience, took the Atlanta Falcons to the Super Bowl. DeMarco Ryan, the defensive coordinator for San Francisco. Um, Kellen Moore, the offensive coordinator for Dallas. Byron Leftwich, the offensive coordinator for Tampa Bay and others who I might not know. I mean, th- those are the possible coaching candidates. What's next for Matt Rule? The fact that uh, I guess he should return to college, right? That's his best option. That's where he probably belongs where he was a successful coach at uh, Temple and Baylor. And you hear these stories and scenarios and reports that, you know, the college programs like Nebraska and Arizona State and Wisconsin and Colorado and Auburn would be, you know, lining up and kissing the ground that he walks on to try to get his availability, to try to get his uh, his uh, coaching acumen and him to coach their team. I mean, Nebraska was so desperate. There was talks and reports, no matter how faint, no matter how thin, no matter how ridiculous they were, that uh, they might be interested in Urban Meyer. That right there tells you how desperate Nebraska is. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to me how we always have this discussion about, well, college coaches are just as good as pro coaches. Well, if that's the case, how is a guy who went 11-27 and 27 in the NFL are, is coming back to be wooed and wild and be given a boatload of money to try to turn around programs in Tempe, Arizona, in Madison, Wisconsin, in Auburn, Alabama, in Boulder, Colorado, and in, um, in, in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. How with that? Nebraska? Arizona State? Really? Going after a guy who went 11-27 and 27 in three and two and a half years with the Carolina Panthers? Interesting. Very interesting. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you can be with us. So, two of the worst penalties I've ever seen in an NFL football game happened on Sunday. It happened on Monday. The roughing the penalty calls in the Monday night game against the uh, Kansas City against the Raiders and the roughing the penalty called on the Atlanta Falcons, uh, Grady uh, Jarrett on Tom Brady of the 
Tampa Bay Buccaneers late in the fourth quarter. Tampa Bay was leading 21 to nothing when Atlanta started their comeback. Falcons scored on two fourth quarter uh, touchdowns to draw within one possession and with three minutes left. Then on the next possession, third on third down, Brady was sacked. That would have forced a Tampa Bay putt. Punt, excuse me, but official Jerome uh, Boger ruled that Jarrett's takedown of Brady was illegal and called roughing the passer, which, of course, anybody, everybody watching that game, even if you're a Tampa Bay fan, would have said, what? <laughs> because that was absolutely atrocious. What Boger said after the game, post-game pool report, he said, uh, what I had was the defender grabbed the quarterback while he was still in the pocket and unnecessarily threw him to the ground. That is what I was ba- making my decision based on. Bullshit. Bullshit. Come on, man. Throwing him to the ground. Throwing him to the ground. He threw Tom Brady to the ground. I don't know, man. My definition of throwing somebody might be a little bit different than yours. If you want to say aggressively put him on the ground, slammed him on the ground, if you want to go that route, if you want to save your bullshit story, you can go by that route. But throwing him on the ground? Throw I, someone need to Bolger needs to explain to me what his definition of throwing was because that was not a throw, that was a takedown, that was a semi-violent takedown of Tom Brady, a man who's forty-five years old, a man who's been in the NFL for twenty-three years, a man who's regarded as the best quarterback who's ever played, a man who's regarded as one of the best football players who's ever played. All of that comes into a, the account when you take in the. Uh, way that he was taken to the ground. But if you're playing football, man, whether you're 45, 35, 25, 55, or 105, I'm sorry, man. If you're going to be playing the man's game, then there you go. If you don't want to be hurt at the advanced age, don't play. Go hang out with uh, Giselle and your kids and save your marriage. So I, I have no idea. Unnecessarily throwing him to the ground. You realize, right, Jerome and the rest of these guys, that Tom Brady, these referees, that Tom Brady is listed at 6'4", 230 pounds, you realize in today's NFL of quarterbacks that we're not talking about Fran Tarkington. We're not talking about Jim Hart. We're not talking about Joe Thiesman. We're not talking about quarterbacks who are, who are frail and slight of build. We're, we are talking about quarterbacks right now who are just as big or even bigger than some linebackers and all bigger than cornerbacks. When you take a look at Josh Allen, who's listed as 6'5 and weighs 240 pounds. Justin Herbert. Listed at 6'6", 240 pounds. Lamar Jackson, with his athletic ability, is still listed at 6'2", and 230 pounds. Patrick Mahomes, very elusive. He's listed at 6'2", and 230 pounds. Joe Burrow of Cincinnati, listed at 6'4", and 225 pounds. Matthew Stafford of the LA Rams, 6'3", 230 pounds. The average weight for an NFL linebacker is 245 pounds. The average weight of an NFL defensive back is 200 pounds. These quarterbacks are about the same size or a little bit smaller than linebackers and much bigger than cornerbacks and secondary folks. The average weight of an NFL defensive end is 278 pounds. So we're not talking about a great disparity to where you have to... You can't hit him high. You can't hit him low. You can't hit him in the head. You can't drive him to the ground. What are you supposed to be doing? These guys are big. These guys are strong. These guys are elusive. You're not going to get close to Tom Brady and he's just going to crumble and fall. So it was just a horrible call. David Carr, another guy around the 
235 pound range. What are these guys supposed to be doing? Well, he's 314 pounds. Yeah, but he was called for roughing the penalty after he swiped the ball, after he took the ball away from David Carr. So he took the ball from David Carr, took him to the ground, and he was still called for roughing the passer? What are we doing? What are we talking about? Yeah, I understand. Overreaction to what happened to Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tungavailoa. I get it. I understand. That image of him laying on the ground after he was slung to the ground in that Thursday night game against Cincinnati after all of the news about what happened to him in that game against Buffalo four games before. I get it. I understand you want to be cautious. I get it. I understand it. I understand that the NFL owners are paying the NFL quarterbacks a whole lot of money. I get it. I understand that the referees are going to be judged on every call and the better they are, the more money they make because they get the referee playoff games and Super Bowl games. I get it. I understand it. I know these referees get mandates from the uh, from their superiors saying, watch out for this. Remember this. Remember that. I get all those type of things. I understand all those type of things. But come on, man. You've got to use some common flipping sense. Everybody's up here talking about we need to implement rule changes and we need to do all these type of things. No. No. Leave the roughing the password penalty alone. And let's work more on these officials having common sense. And yes, I understand when you do it in slow motion that it makes it look even more egregious, the call that was made against the uh, Falcons and against Kansas City. But come on, man. You guys have been, these referees have been doing this some for over a decade. Come on now. You should know malicious intent. You should know, understand, you, you, you side on the error of caution. That if it looks violent, that it seems violent, then you go ahead because you're trying to protect the players. I understand that the NFL has been taking the bashing from the public opinion about CTE and the way that they've been treating their retired players and the way that the uh, Thursday Night Football game shows that these guys, the NFL owner and the league itself, is more concerned about the do- bottom dollar and not the player itself. I understand the Richard Shermans of the world and other folks talking about the NFL Owners and stuff and such don't care about us. I understand all that stuff. But come on, man. This is the game of football. You know, this is a situation where, remember in NASCAR, and if you don't, I understand, but when Dale Earnhardt died and everybody was sitting there talking about we need to make this uh, change, we need to make this change for safety, and we need to do this, and the harnesses and all this type of stuff, and the bottom line is if you're driving a car around a track 200 miles per hour 500 times with other cars, that they're no matter what you do, that unfortunately there's going to be fatalities. Unfortunately, there's going to be injuries. Hey, man, that's the same thing in football. We can make all the rules humanly possible to try to protect the quarterback. But guess what? You are playing a violent game. You are playing a contact game. You are playing a physical game. And you are playing a game against other players of superior athletic talent and skill. Injuries will happen. There is nothing that you can implement. There is nothing that you can look out for. There is nothing that you can do to protect a quarterback from being injury-free and still playing at the level of Tom Brady 20-plus years into his NFL career. I understand the financial investment. I understand what a franchise quarterback means to a franchise in terms of its value, in terms of uh, what it means to the community and to the state and to the region and all those type of things and to merchandise sales. I get it. I understand it. But sometimes, man, injuries to quarterbacks are going to happen. And and sometimes an injury to a quarterback is going to happen to where he's going to be missing a multitude of games. He could be missing an entire season. It happens. Let's just have these guys go out and play football 
Be cognizant of what's going on in terms of protecting not just the quarterback, but everybody. And whatever happens, happens. So this dilly-dallying and this talking about we need to change the rules and we need to you know, implement and the rules committee needs to get together and we need immediate changes because two referees made horrible decisions. This stuff would go away so much easier if we could just have the official come out and say, you know what, guys, I fucked up. My bad. I feel horrible. I feel terrible. And the second call in the game on uh, Monday between Kansas City and Las Vegas, that roughing the penalty call, it was more. It, it led to more outrage and more discussion because of what happened on Sunday between Atlanta and uh, Atlanta and Tampa, Tampa Bay, and when it happened. If that call would have been made sometime in the first quarter or sometime before half, or it didn't have an impact on the outcome of the game, then there's no way that this discussion about roughing the passer, that that penalty would have sustained such uh, discussion and opinions. And the outrage amongst folks who saw that game on Monday night, it wouldn't have been at that level. If that call had not been made at that period of time on Tom Brady in that game between Atlanta and um, and Tampa Bay, so so leave it alone, leave it alone, and for the referees, use some doggone common sense. Last segment of the podcast, last segment of the program. So thank you so doggone much for listening to Wendell's World of Sports. I, I very much appreciate it. Again, this is Simulcast. So if you're listening to this podcast on Amazon or iTunes or iHeart or Spotify, um, and if you want to see me do this like, you know, face this, that, and the other, go over to my uh, YouTube page, Wendell's World of Sports, and you can hear me and see me do the same doggone thing. And, oh, yeah, by, by the way, the, the promo that's played, uh, if you're listening and not watching the promo that's being played, man, the uh, the highlights for the promo for my YouTube uh, episode, off the hook, A plus, number one, way to go. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Let me finish off with some uh, NBA regular season. It's almost here, it's almost here, it's almost here, it's almost here. My Halle Berry's almost here. My Layla Rochelle is almost here. My, my, my Monica Bellucci is, al- Bellucci is almost here. My Selma Hayek is almost here. My wifey, the love of my life, and all those good things. That is the NBA. 
<laughs> Georgetown, the love of my life as far as the team, as far as the sport, the love of my life, the NBA, the NBA, Mamalika Bellucci at the NBA, storylines for the season. Um, of course, you got the return of Kawhi Leonard, Zion Williamson for the Clippers and the uh, Pelicans. How are they going to be? How are they going to perform? Jake Draymond Green, Superman punching teammate Jordan Poole. He's going to be missing some time to uh, kind of find himself, to kind of regroup, to kind of grow, to uh, kind of uh, center himself, those type of things. All this stuff is, I guess, centered around that Jordan Poole is talking contract extension New deal with the Golden State Warriors that Draymond Green isn't. So that has drawn the ire of Draymond. So why are you going to punch Jordan Poole? Punch Bob Myers. What are you punching Jordan Poole for? I mean, you know, I mean, you can only call someone a bitch so, so many times in the spirit of competition. What's Jordan Poole supposed to do? Take it? This bitch is going to be making more money than you are. So what are you, what are you uh, getting mad at me for? The most talked about player, though. This, this can almost wreck an NBA season. We saw it with LeBron. When he was in high school, we saw it with Zion. We saw it with uh, certain <clears throat> prospects uh, who weren't playing in the NBA because, you know, you take a look at the storylines. LeBron James in the NBA and in, 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 in the L.A. Lakers. Because he's LeBron James, he's going to be talked about. What's going to be happening with the L.A. Lakers in terms of LeBron and A.D. and Russell Westbrook? Can the Lakers get back to you know being championship contenders? What's going to be year two like with Russell Westbrook? Is he going to be able to mesh with LeBron and Anthony Davis? Is Anthony Davis going to be healthy enough to uh, be the guy that LeBron James thought he was getting to have him win a couple of more championships? Kale, how much more can LeBron James play at a high level before age and injuries and minutes and just the rigors of playing 18, 19 NBA years finally start taking its toll. What's going to be happening with LeBron and the Lakers? That's going to be one of the most talked about stories going in this NBA basketball season. Steph Curry, because he's Steph Curry, of course, is going to be getting a lot of attention. And he's playing for the defending champions, the Golden State Warriors. Luka is going to be getting some attention because he's supposed to be the guy that's supposed to be the MVP who was supposed to be the MVP last season. Now he played over in the the Euro League. He slimmed down. He's gotten serious. Is this the year that Luca for the season is going to average a triple double and a real triple double, an impactful triple double in helping out the uh, Dallas Mavericks and um, uh, make that move. Of course, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving because they attract the most drama outside of LeBron. The two biggest drama queens if you want to put it that way as far as KD and Kyrie is concerned. What's going to be that situation like? And you throw that into the pot with uh, Ben Simmons. And you throw into the uh, situation where both KD and Kyrie wanted out. And KD was speaking about, I want uh, Sean Marks and um, Steve Kerr fired. And, and all of this stuff. So we're, we're, we're almost like watching a car, driving behind a car, waiting for that car to get into a car wreck. So we can drive by and see the casualties or see the fatalities, right? What What's going to be happening? Are the Brooklyn Nets going to get it together and be true championship contenders? Or is this team going to implode like it did at the end of last season? One of the more talked about storylines for the season. And of course, we're going to be speaking about the Phoenix Suns, the most miserable team as far as going into the NBA season. If you saw them during the training camp, them losing to a team from Australia, and we still don't know. We still don't know what happened to the Phoenix Suns at the end of the season. We, we, we still don't know what happened between in, in Game 6 and 7, especially Game 7 in the NBA. One of the great mysteries. One of the great mysteries in life. Who exactly was Jack the Ripper? 
Who was the Zodiac Killer? Did Oswald really shoot Kennedy? Who else was in cahoots to kill Martin Luther King? Who else besides the Nation of Islam and Louis Farrakhan and Elijah Poole conspired to kill the great, the legendary Malcolm X? What exactly happened to Amelia Earhart? What happened to LeBron James in Game 7 of the semifinals his first time around with the Boston Celtics? There was Game 6 against the Boston Celtics in the Eastern Conference semifinals. And exactly what in the hell happened to the Phoenix Suns Game 7 last season against the Dallas Mavericks in the Western Conference semifinals? We still don't know how that imploded. We still don't know how that went down. We still don't know exactly how that happened. And I don't know. One of the great mysteries of sports and life. Exactly what happened. DeAndre Ayton doesn't look happy to be there. No smiling faces. He still hadn't talked to Monty Williams. And Monty Williams doesn't need to feel doesn't feel the need to uh try to talk to DeAndre Ayton to find out exactly what's going on. What is going on? So those are the steroid lines. Those are some of the things that we'll be paying attention. But another name that will dominate the basketball landscape. And he won't be playing in the league or in college basketball. This season is going to be hijacked a little bit by Victor Wimbignana. Remember that name. He's going to be discussed, covered, and talked about more than such current NBA greats and interesting players like Giannis, Nikola Jokic, Joel Embiid, John Morant, uh, Damian Lillard, Zion, this this guy, Victor Wimbignana, is going to be a guy that we're all going to be talking about. Seven feet five, guy is amazing, can put the ball on the floor. He's a, he's a hybrid of, he's a hybrid of Kevin Durant, um, Anthony Davis, Ralph Sampson. I keep saying the name Ralph Sampson. I keep saying the name Ralph Sampson. I've mentioned Victor Wimbignana in my podcast before, and I keep mentioning the name Victor. Wimbenyana, remember that name. Um, for the kids out there, Ralph Sampson, remember that name. YouTube Ralph Sampson. Because if Ralph Sampson was playing basketball in the year 2022, and he was 18, 19, how old, however old Victor Wimbenyana is, if Ralph Sampson was still a teenager playing in the year 2022, he would be Victor Wimbenyana. Victor Wimbenyana is this generation's uh, Ralph Sampson, in terms of his ability at his height to put the ball on the floor, the ability to shoot, to have perimeter skills, that's Victor Wimbignana. So, you know, th- this is a guy where, look, teams should be tanking for this guy. If you're not the Boston Celtics, if you're not the Milwaukee Bucks, if you're not the Miami Heat, if you're not the um, Golden State Warriors, if you're not the L.A. Clippers, if you're not the Golden State Warriors, if you're not one of those teams, you should be tanking for Victor Wimbignana. The Denver Nuggets? The Philadelphia 76ers? The Dallas Mavericks? Okay, they shouldn't be tanking because they have a little bit of a chance. But if you're the Utah Jazz, they're tanking. If you're the uh, um, San Antonio Spurs, they're tanking. If you're a fan of the Oklahoma City Thunder, Eric G., they're tanking. And anybody else who doesn't have a realistic shot to win a championship, you should be tanking because Victor Wimbignana is that doggone good. I just 
hated the fact that the Wizards went ahead and signed Bradley Beal to that ridiculous contract. Why? Because I want Washington to sting out loud. Why? Because I want Victor Wimbanyana on my team next season, man. We gotta have something. I'm tired of being a Washingtonian. I'm tired of a guy who loves and breathes and bleeds and everything. The DMV, the Washington District, the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. I'm tired of being from that place and representing that place and having all of my teams, uh, professional sport teams, be irrelevant. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it, my man. I'm tired of it. So, uh, Victor Wimbignana. Yeah, look out for that guy. He's something else. All right. I want to thank you very much for listening to the podcast. I'm going to go over here now and finish watching the uh, Major League Baseball playoffs. I see that the Yankees just won their game over the Cleveland Indians. Up next, we have the San Diego Padres playing the Los Angeles Dodgers. I would get into baseball, but man, these games, number one, they're just too damn slow, slow and too damn boring, and too damn long. I watch a little bit more because it's the playoffs, but goodness gracious sakes of life. Woo! Man, that's some that's some that's some that's some interesting stuff, man. So yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and do that. Also, next week I'm gonna I gotta fit in some um I gotta fit in some college football. I really do. I've been derelict in my duties to be speaking about um, college football. So I need to step that up because after all, it's a wall of thing you wouldn't understand. Well, I thank you so much for watching or listening to my podcast. Again, uh, anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcast, download, subscribe, follow, rate, review, enjoy the most entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can listen to. And if you are watching this episode or watching this podcast on my YouTube channel, Wendell's World of Sports, subscribe to my channel, like the video, and um, comment. I would really much appreciate that. As always, in closing, I must I must uh, say, man, please do what we can. Please do what we can to uh, do the right thing, to open up our minds, to learn from folks. You don't have all the answers. You don't have all of the knowledge. You don't have all the ways this ways works, these ways works. Please, man, open up your mind. Open up your heart and learn from folks who are from a different part of the country than you, from a different background, a different cultural background, a different race, a different gender, different political affiliation, different uh, religious backgrounds, different sides of the globe. Can we, can we please, can we please listen to people with knowledge? Can we please listen to those who can offer something in terms of wisdom, no matter what it is? If they're young, if they're old and anywhere in between, can we please have the respect to listen. Can we please take the time to listen to those folks so we can learn, so we can grow, so we can educate, so we can do what we need to do to make this world a much better place through understanding. Put the, put the, um, put, put the hands down, put the defense down, open up your mind, open up your heart, listen, educate yourself, please. Please get out of the community, get out of the rut, get out of the mindset, and learn some things. Pass it on to the younger generation so they can live in a utopian society where people are truly, truly are based on who they are as human beings and not by anybody else. And don't be so god, don't be so goddamn ignorant when people are talking to you. Understand what they're talking about, please. Grow up, show some maturity, and do those type of things. Please, please, do it for the world. Do it for our society. Do it for the children. Do it for everybody. Wendell's World in Sports. My name is Wendell Wallace. Get me out of here with some music. <laughs>